Welcome to the CIO Agenda. I'm Sandy Rattray, CIO at Man Group. Today, we are discussing where next for emerging market debt. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Lisa Chua, Portfolio Manager of Emerging Market Debt Strategies at Man GLG. So let's kick off, uh, Lisa, by talking about uh, COVID-19 had a profound impact, not just on individual lives, but at a national and global scale as well. So how has the pandemic shaped the landscape for emerging markets? Thanks, Sandy. Look, the volatility that we saw in 2020, particularly in the early part of 2020 on the back of the pandemic, took a lot of market participants by surprise. But in our view, what it really did was brought fragilities and vulnerabilities that had been brewing for years to the surface. You know, to put this into perspective, from 2007 to 2019, the medium debt to GDP for emerging market countries increased by almost 20 percentage points to GDP. In 2020 alone, the debt-to-GDP metrics increased by over 10 percentage points on average for EM countries. This surge in debt accumulation would have taken seven years over the 2007 to 2019 period. And and clearly, if we look at the emerging markets, they're a very diverse group. Uh, And we know, of course, that Asian countries were much better prepared for the pandemic than Latin America or uh, Eastern Europe. So can you discuss a little bit more the winners and the losers within each region? When we think about the asset class, you're right, we we would think it's it's somewhat bifurcated and there is what we view as the haves and the have-nots, the winners and the losers potentially. We do think though, um, when when we look at it, the countries that will be more challenged are those countries that have, you know, worse balance sheets, that have higher external debt burdens, um, and that typically tend to have pegged or effects regimes. So the countries that we're more constructive on are those countries that have floating effects regimes. It's the countries that you typically think of when you think of emerging markets. Think about, you know, the Mexico's, the Indonesia's, the Colombia's. These countries have floating effects regimes to be able to adjust to weather a more volatile and difficult macro environment. And then you contrast that to, say, some of these countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in frontier markets, countries like Suriname or Tajikistan that people only, you know, you had to look at on a map to locate when the prospectus came out. These are the countries, pe- countries that have pegged effects regimes and won't be able to adjust to restore macroeconomic imbalances and pay back their external debt. Okay, great. I'm glad it's not just you that's uh, looking at maps when the prospectuses come out. So let's talk about um, debt sustainability and um, really the concerns which I know you have about some of the emerging market uh, sovereign debt universe uh, being able to sustain um, their increasing debt loads. Yeah, so we do think that debt sustainability concerns, you know, they took center stage in 2020 with the EM sovereign default rate spiking to over 10% last year. This was a 20-year record high and it approached levels that were last seen in 2001. And we do expect debt sustainability concerns to continue to be a risk for the weaker credits. You know, as you mentioned, typically those with pegged or overvalued FX regimes and a heavy reliance on commodities also as, you start, as we start to see more fluctuations in commodity prices. But more specifically, our, our broader view is that emerging market countries will need to adjust. They'll need to either improve their fiscal dynamics, which is challenging from a political standpoint if you need to raise taxes or cut spending at a time when many parts of the population are suffering on the back of the pandemic or you're going to have to reduce your debt, potentially by depreciating the currency to dilute their local debt by the FX pass-through and inflation. So those countries with over-levered balance sheets that have picked FX regimes or that fail to adjust 
are likely to default, you know, may need up ending and have to impose capital controls. On the other hand, you know, as you mentioned, the countries with more manageable external debt burdens that have floating effects regimes, we would expect to be able to adjust to restore these imbalances and then pay back their external debt. But we think it's going to be, you know, a volatile time kind of more broadly for emerging markets as a whole. Although over the medium term, there will be modes the haves and the have-nots. I know that some people hold the view that the emerging markets are less levered as countries and as a group than the developed markets, and that they've also had to add less leverage during this crisis in the developed markets. And so actually, they should suffer less stress from the sort of aftershocks and tail effects of the corona crisis. But I think you disagree with that. So can you tell me why why you disagree that EM should survive better than DM? We think that actually EM will have a tougher time relative to some developed markets. So, you know, our view is essentially that across the board, across globally, you know, you have developed markets and emerging markets needing to spend more to address kind of the crisis on the back of the COVID pandemic. The countries they have more deeper financial markets and more you know, robust financial institutions to be able to do that. But for emerging markets, you're, you're dealing with countries that have already fragile balance sheets and you have a wide range of countries where some you know, are, are doing less orthodox policies. You know, think about a, a country like Turkey that has historically been very unorthodox, right, um, with regard to your credibility for your financial institutions and independence. Then you have a country like South Africa here where you have unemployment at 30 percent of basically the workforce. These countries that need to make adjustments to lower their fiscal debt burdens, it's going to be a much more challenging environment for them as our points. And within developed markets, you know, we've already seen delays in the vaccine rollouts, for example. Think about an emerging market country where you have less access to vaccines, where the distribution infrastructure is much more challenging. So, you know, in our view, 2021 is con- going to continue to be a challenge. Um, it's not just going to just didn't suddenly all go away, the impacts from the pandemic. And barring the weaker segment of the market, or the have-nots, as you call them, is it safe to assume that the outlook for emerging market debt in 2021 should be rosier than last year? Yeah, look, the, the initial shock from the pandemic may be behind us, but we're of the view that the ripple effects are likely to still be felt in 2021 for many emerging market economies. You know, there, as I mentioned, there's been much euphoria over the vaccine rollouts, but even in developed markets, this has come with delays. And emerging market countries face even more logistical issues with regard to the availability of vaccines um, and the distribution infrastructure. So, you know, as such, fiscal deficits, weak activity and rapid debt accumulation is likely to persist in emerging markets this year. And, you know, as you mentioned, there will be kind of a division between those countries that have stronger balance sheets and lower debt burdens and that can adjust. And those countries that are more overlevered within emerging markets and will be more plagued by this kind of sudden surge in debt accumulation. You know, the second point that I want to make is we're also of the view that Chinese credit injections won't be sufficient to resuscitate EM out of weakness. And many are of the, of the view that a substantial increase in Chinese credit impulse in 2020 can drive continued outperformance for emerging markets more broadly. However, when we look at the amounts of credit injected in the economy on a monthly basis, we see that, yes, there was a large expansion in the second quarter of 2020, but that was largely reversed by the end of the third quarter. And this contrasts you know, to previous periods of Chinese credit injection, such as the expansions from 2008 to 2010 or from 2014 to 2016, when credit injection stayed at elevated levels for almost two years after the initial acceleration. So the increase, you know, that we see in the Chinese credit impulse, which allowed their economy to recover to pre-pandemic activity levels, has already been reduced and in our view will hinder the ability for the rest of EM to continue riding on China's tailwinds. 
you know, growth in the construction in China, one of the main drivers for the recovery last year has already accelerated and it might not be enough to keep metal prices at inflated level. You know, but finally, I think, and, and most importantly, when we think about our investment process and when we think about the outlook for the asset class, it's driven not only by fundamentals, but also by positioning and valuations. And the biggest danger that we see with assuming a rosier outlook for 2021 is that following a volatile 2020, this assumption is already widely held, meaning it's already reflected in both valuations and positioning, and it's setting the market up for a potential disappointment. Even if I look at the asset class, and you mentioned earlier, you know, how do you think about it between those that are less levered and those that are more levered? The spread for the investment grade segment of the emerging market debt universe is close to the 10-year tights, suggesting that any hopes for a more rosier 2021 has already looked fully priced into valuations. And issuers have taken advantage of these low yields to issue longer and longer bonds. You know, 40-year and 50-year bonds are becoming more and more frequent versus historically 30-year was the long end for EM. So when you look at, let's say, like the average duration for emerging market dollar bonds, you know, the JP Morgan MBIG benchmark, 10 years ago, that duration was seven years. Today, it's nine and a half years. So valuations are looking stretched and risk accumulation is occurring at a time when the asset class is becoming increasingly sensitive to changes in rates or spreads. Okay. And let's talk about valuations in the emerging market debt universe. So, for example, when you look, a valuation is more attractive in the high-yield segment, in the hard currency space, or in local markets. Where do you find more attractive and less attractive valuations? I'll, I'll tell you my view, and I'll tell you maybe what, the, what, what, what others might be seeing. You know, when you look at, I, I mentioned investment-grade spreads are at the, at the tight end of valuations, even when you look at over the last 10 years. You look at high-yield spreads, that's closer to the average of where it's been over the last 10 years. So, you know, not quite at the tights. But we think it still looks stretched when put in the context of lower commodity prices. You know, Brent is up from its lows at that 58, but we're not at $100 oil like we were 10 years ago. Um, And then particularly, though, and especially when you put it in context of the much weaker balance sheets that many of these high yield countries have. So we think that, you know, over the medium term, even though, let's say, um, the valuations look to be at average, we think that when you put it in the broader context of the macro and the fundamentals, high yields still look stretched. Um, the lesson that investors should have learned from 2020 is that yields don't necessarily convert to return when there are defaults. So we think you, you know, we caution against an indiscriminate grab for yield. Um, we think it's a dangerous game to play in the current environment, particularly in the high yield segment. So you know, country selection and alpha generation will be key, not just beta plays and yield grabs. When we think about the local currency side, um, you know, valuations at first glance appear to be on the cheaper end versus the dollar. And that's what many local market bulls will point to. They'll look at valuations and assume some kind of mean reversion trades. But we caution against jumping to such conclusions too hastily, because, again, we don't think valuations should be looked at in a vacuum, but in the context of the broader macro backdrop, you know, in conjunction with the fundamentals. And as we mentioned previously, we do think that we're of the view that many of these countries will need to depreciate their currencies in order to effectively inflate their way out of their debt burdens and stabilize their debt. Okay, well, let's, let's move on and talk about currency now. Obviously, something really important um, to you as a, as a macro um, investor. So there's clearly a consensus view out there that the dollar will carry on depreciating, perhaps as a function of uh, the Fed's uh, commitment to keep uh, rates really low, at the, um, especially at the short end. So if the dollar goes down in value, something has to go up. And um, from that perspective, 
is it possible to have a constructive view on emerging market currencies versus the dollar? Right. Look, we believe that even if you have a bearish view on the dollar, that doesn't imply that EMFX should outperform versus the dollar. So, you know, what you have to think about is, okay, if you're, if you're worried about the dollar, what are the reasons you're worried about the dollar? You know, you're looking at valuations, you're looking at fundamentals in terms of the current accounts and so forth. So in our view, you know, an easy way to think about that is, okay, let's think about the dollar versus China versus CMY, right? Um, you know, real effective exchange rates for the dollar suggest that valuations are, are close to the average of the last 25 plus years. And then you contrast this to real effective exchange rates for the CNY, which is close to the most expensive levels ever recorded. So, you know, if you believe in a world where EM currencies are highly correlated to the CNY, any kind of view that expects EM currencies to substantially outperform the dollar needs to believe also that the CNY has a substantial upside versus the dollar in real terms. And in our view, that's simply not the case when we look at valuations. And then on top of that, the disparity between China and the U.S. is even further evidence when we look at the evolution of the current account balances. The real effective exchange rate of the CNY you know, was becoming increasingly expensive over a period in which the current account balance fell from a surplus of plus 10% in 2007 to close to the flat by September 2020. You know, at the same time, the U.S. current account was improving from a deficit of minus six points in early 2007, but to less than half that amount by September 2020. So even if you hold to a weak dollar view, in our view, this would imply a likely even weaker CNY view. So we find it difficult to believe that CNY has enough upside to be able to drive a meaningful EM currency appreciation in real terms and much less in nominal terms. And let, let's just uh, quickly focus on what might happen next in EM under one scenario. So many macro investors are saying that the 2020s could be a little bit like the 1920s. You have the roaring 20s, you can have the roaring 20s again, and the sort of extraordinary recovery. If there was an extraordinary recovery in developed markets, what would that mean for the emerging markets that you invest in? I think that depends on what you mean by extraordinary recovery for developed markets. Um, you know, one, one thing that I'd like to go back, it depends on what you're talking about, and I'll break that up maybe into in a, in a couple of different ways. You know, if you're thinking like, an extraordinary recovery because, you know, we have vaccine rollouts and then everything comes back to, you know, this massive recovery, then I would say like, okay, emerging markets, keep in mind, are going to be a bit more behind where developed markets are with regard to, again, access to vaccines and distribution infrastructure. Um, so we don't think that you're going to get back to kind of pre-pandemic levels for GDP in a lot of these countries this year. You know, then there's the other side of the story where people are more bullish because they think, okay, well, you know, developed market central banks are going to come in and save the day, and there's going to be, you know, excess liquidity that's going to just boost risky assets across the broad. And that's also a widely held belief. And in our opinion, though, when you think about it, that view is, all, is already priced into the markets. That view is already priced into risky assets, in our opinion. That view is already priced into the crowded positioning that we're seeing, you know, in emerging market debt. To put this into context, in 2020, when the pandemic first hit, in the first few weeks of uh, March 2020, Emerging market dollar bonds fell by almost 20% in March of last year, right? Then they managed to basically recover all that and then some to generate a return of almost plus 6% for the full year. Same thing for local emerging market local debt. If you look at the GBI EM Global Diversified, the local debt benchmark, you know, that was down about 18 points in March at one point. Then they managed to close the full year of 2020 up almost 3%. So in our view, a lot of this euphoria, whether euphoric about vaccines, whether euphoric about kind of excess liquidity coming from global central banks, 
that looks to us priced into risky assets, including emerging market debt, when we look at valuations and when we look at positioning. Okay, great. And then that's uh, really clear. And, and any other takeaways from your perspective for 2021 when you're thinking about investing in emerging market debt? Yeah, look, we do think that country selection and alpha generation will be key to navigating a more challenging macro environment for emerging market debt, you know, rather than beta plays and blind yield grabs. And in the hard currency universe, as I mentioned, we prefer countries with floating FX regimes and more manageable external debt burdens. But we do believe that the entry point will be key as optimism for a brighter 2021, as you mentioned, is already reflected in valuations and positioning, whether you're looking at investment grade or high yield. On the high yield side, though, you do have the extra credit and liquidity risk. So we think the tail risks are much greater there. You know, gambling on a resurrection for a country with an overlevered balance sheet is a much, much more at stake and it's much riskier um, than, than in a credit that might be able to navigate the volatility. On the local currency side, we think that further adjustment may be necessary to restore the macroeconomic imbalances and help get debt sustainability back on track. So we, we do think that even though optically we look to be at the cheaper end versus recent averages, we think there's a reason for that when we look at the fundamentals and we think that more adjustment may be, may be necessary. And you know, while our outlook for the year does suggest the potential for more volatility ahead, we do believe that this volatility could provide opportunities as valuation and positioning improves. So we continue to monitor how this evolves in the context of the overall landscape for EM. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you uh, very much, Lisa. And in summary, I think EM uh, remains a risky place. Uh, in many places, as you said, uh, spreads have tightened uh, much uh, more than maybe fundamentals would uh, suggest they should have done at this time. And we should focus on the difference between countries and segments of the market. Thanks, Andy. You can subscribe to the CIO Agenda on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you for joining us today. Mm-hmm.